some people that give Elimelech a hard time. They're like, oh, he should have, he should have stuck it out. You know, he should have stayed there in, in Bethlehem. I can't believe that he, he didn't trust God and he went off to this, the city of Moab. Now, where does Moab come, come from? You remember, I shared shortly a little bit about Abraham saying, Lord, would you spare Sodom and Gomorrah if there were 50? How about if there's 40, 30, 10, 20, 10? Well, Lot, his wife and daughters start running out. Lot's wife did what? Turn back, look, turns to a pillar of salt. salt. His daughters then commit incest with Lot and have sons, the Moabites and the Ammonites. So when Elimelech takes his family to Moab, he is taking them to the descendants of Lot, the incestuous area. And this is, you know, clearly they're not looked upon with high regard, but yet that's where he's going for refuge. So sometimes people give him a hard time, but I, I'm, I'm hesitant to do that, and here's why. Because I think as you read through the names of every single person in his family, every person lived up to their name. And Elimelech means the Lord or God is my king. God is my king. El, like, uh, is the, you know, you're probably familiar with like El Elyon or El Shaddai. El is one of the Hebrew names for, you know, God, for the Lord. And so here we have Elimelech, which is God is my king. Then we have the name of Naomi. Pleasant. Her name means pleasant. Uh, in fact, later on, she was like, don't call me Naomi. You know, I'm not Naomi. I'm not pleasant. Call me uh, Mara, which is what? Bitter. You may, re- let's make this connection. You remember when we did Passover, a uh, Passover Seder? Do you remember the bitter herbs? Marar? Same word. Same, same, same thing. Bitterness. She's like, don't even call me pleasant. Call me bitter. Now, this is my favorite. Uh, Malon, who is the husband of Ruth, his name means sick. <laughs> How would you like to have that name? Sick. And what makes it even funnier is Kilion, his brother, his strength is declining. He is tired. Her sons were sick and tired. <laughs> oh, my goodness. You know, how funny is that? So then we have, and what, you know, of course, they, they died as well. Then we have Ruth. Ruth means friendship, companion, and Orpah. Uh, Orpah is one of those that, that's kind of confusing to me. And the best I can understand, her name means neck or gazelle or the neck of a gazelle, the back of the neck. It's, it's really confusing. Uh, how does she live up to that? What is that? What is that? And the best I can tell is that it is a reference to her turning her head back to where she came and running back to where she came from as a gazelle, as a neck turns and then runs. Uh, so that's the best that I can maybe with Orpah, uh, understand the meaning of her name. But the Hebrew people have an oral teaching. This will surprise you. 
uh, they have an oral teaching uh, that is eventually going to be written down. So they have the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, the law. And then they have some oral teachings, things, things that they just say uh, out loud, but they've never written it down, at least not until centuries later. The oral teaching is called the Mishnah, the Mishnah. And like I said, eventually they're going to write it down, and the Mishnah is going to be part of a larger writing called the Talmud. Okay, you may have heard that term before, the Talmud. The Talmud records the history of Orpah. So, is it, is it something we can say with 100% accuracy that this history is true? Not the same way we can with the book of Ruth, because the book of Ruth is in Scripture, and we can take that with, with great certainty that it's historically accurate. The Talmud, on the other hand, we can go, it's worth reading, but I don't know, you know if, it, if we can say it with 100% certainty. But here's what the Talmud records about Orpah. So what, what happened to her? Uh, Jewish history records that she returned and she gave birth to four Philistine giants. Are you with me so far? She gave birth to four sons who were giants and who were Philistines. One of those sons is the name, are you ahead of me? Goliath. Goliath. If, in fact, if you were, I don't have my phone, if you were to ask Siri, say, Siri, who's the mother of Goliath? Siri would say, Orpah. <laughs> that is mind-blowing to me, right? So can we say it with absolute certainty that that's, that that's true? That one became the mother of David, which we can say absolutely, we know without a doubt that happened. She became, she, she, Ruth becomes the ancestor to that is going to produce David. And then Orpah, who returned, did what? Became the mother of one day, the giant that is going to stand before uh, King David or, or, or young, a young David. So what can we affirm with absolute certainty? Ruth is the great-grandmother of David. That we can say with, with absolute certainty and confidence. So here's the... Here's the tension. Here's the question for us, right? How do we resolve the tension between the providential hand of God and our own free will? Right? I mean, you're looking at this and you're going, how much of this was they made a lot of choices and those choices moved them from Bethlehem to Moab then they made a lot of other choices and then moved back from Moab to Bethlehem. How did all that happen? How much of that is just God's providential hand and how much of it is free will? You see the tension. It's incredible tension here. There are some who are going to assert that free will is just an illusion. They're going to say, you really don't have free will at all. It's just an illusion. The challenge with this assertion is that it suggests that mankind are just merely puppets and that God is just orchestrating every single thing and he is deceiving us to think that we have free will when we really don't. But my Bible says God is not the deceiver. God doesn't deceive us. He's not going to do something to deceive us and to make us think that we have free will when we really don't. If, if, that, if, if he were doing that, it would make God deceptive. 
So I don't think that that's the best answer. Uh, typically, the people who hold this view uh, are people that are, are people that are going to say, "Well, God just God just wants some to be saved and some to be damned, and it's all for His glory." You know that? I mean, it's that type of tension. But I think there's a better explanation. Matthew six ten. In the gospel accounts, the disciples come before Jesus. And they said, Jesus, would you teach us to pray? And part of that prayer that Jesus teaches his disciples, he says these words to the heavenly Father, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, why would Jesus teach us to pray for God's will to be done on earth if God's will is already happening perfectly up on the earth. Right? I mean, if God's will is just already happening, why do we need to pray for God's will to happen when it's already, it's already going to happen? I believe the scriptures are teaching us that God's will happens perfectly in heaven and that God has given us free will to participate in his will on earth. We can participate with him in his perfect will. He has a will, has a desire, but he has given us free will. What does that look like? Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Did you see that? There is a condition here for God's providential hand. He works all things out for good to those who love God, in other words, for those who have aligned their lives with God's will. God, I want to align. I surrender my will for yours. I want your will to be done in my life. It's a surrender of your will for his. And then he works all those things out for good. And that's one of the reasons I go back to Elimelech, and I think God is doing what? God's providential hand is protecting them and guiding them. Why? Because they're saying, Lord, you know, we know that you're going to work all things out for good. So, consider if you align your life with God's will, you're going to see the hand of God at work. Consider Proverbs, Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. So, you want to see the hand of God? You want to see God's providential hand leading and guiding you? Then what, are, what's, what is the circumstances? is we surrender to his will. When we surrender to God's will, we can anticipate he's going to work all things out. That's why I would suggest Elimelech, God is my king, is doing what? Trusting in the Lord. Okay? He's going to trust in the Lord. And what's God doing? Working all things out. Working all things out. So again, that's the condition. Now, what can we say with certainty about the God's will and providential hand? There are circumstances throughout the Old Testament of what we call conditional and unconditional circumstances. There were covenants that were made, and sometimes the covenants came with conditions. It was like, as long as you do this, then God will do this. And then there's also unconditional covenants that God says, this is unconditional. I'm going to be faithful to this promise even when you're not. Okay, so, but they're both in, are in play. There are times 
But it's like, look, as long as you do this, as long as you do this, then you can expect my blessing to be poured out. But the moment that you rebel against me and become idolatrous, you're going to see the cycle of, the, of judges. And then I'm going to give you over to oppression, and then you're going to repent, and then we're going to have to restore you. But then there's also those moments that are unconditional. doesn't matter what you do. God is going to be faithful to that promise. So how do we think about all of those? How do we, how do we kind of put all this together? If God has made a promise, if he makes a promise, an unconditional covenant promise, he's going to keep it no matter what, right? You can rest assured that he is going to keep that promise. But what is Satan going to do? He's going to do every single thing he can to thwart God being able to keep his promise. So if God promises something, Satan's going to try his best to stop it. The death of Elimelech, the death of his sons would be an example where Satan is doing everything he can to stop the ancestry that's going to lead to Jesus. And he's trying to stop it. Yet through the providential hand of God, Ruth is still redeemed and redeemed by Boaz, the son of Solomon and Rahab. So each time we see a promise of God, that every single time that unconditional promise of God is in jeopardy, we can rest assured that the providential hand of God is going to orchestrate the circumstances so that God's promises will always prevail. Every time. Every time. So, in addition to the unconditional promises of God, there are, are conditional circumstances that move the hand of God. And he will direct your path as you do what? Trust in the Lord. So even when the circumstances look bleak, right? As we're looking at this and going, time of judges, famine, it looks terrible. Even when things look terrible, we can have confidence that God is at work and that number one, he is going to be faithful to his unconditional promises and that if you align your life with his will, then you can even rest assured that he will orchestrate things in your life to bring about his purposes.